Welcome back to Pace Immigration, paceimmigration.com. Joined once again by immigration lawyer Michael O'Rourke. Michael, good to see you. Hey, Sean. Good to see you. How's it going? Very well, thanks. Uh, love is in the air. That's what we're talking about today. We have here, how do I bring my spouse to the USA? Michael, you get this question a lot online from people and the emails coming in. So an American citizen or a green card holder wants, uh, maybe they fall in love and they get married overseas or they want to bring someone to the US and they want them, of course, if they're married, uh, they want them to stay in the United States. So we're going to talk about that today. So uh, from the top, who can sponsor a spouse to the USA? So one, they have to be legally married and two, has to be either a US citizen or a US permanent resident or green card holder. Okay. Uh, you have up on the slide, what about other visa holders? And uh, they can't. Out can. of luck. Right. Out of luck. They can still get married in the U.S., uh, but it doesn't give them any sort of right to petition to stay in the U.S. as permanent residents. Right. We talk all the time like U.S. H-1B holders, people that have been in the United States for a very long time, but they aren't permanent residents and they aren't U.S. citizens. So obviously then uh, the spousal angle is not going to work for them as an application. Exactly. Okay. So let's carry on to the process itself then. We've nailed that down. U.S. citizens and green card holders, no problems uh, so far. We'll get into some problems in a little bit. Uh, but take us through this. First of all, does the U.S. recognize common law couples? We do a lot of stuff uh, for Canada, where Canada you know, recognizes a ton of stuff when it comes to relationships, but not so much in the United States. No, not for this type of benefit. Uh, common law couples, it's very much less common than you see in Canada. Common law couples, that idea of a common law relationship inside the United States only exists in a few states. I remember back to bar study a uh, hundred years ago, uh, it was like 12 states that actually recognized common law couples. And for spousal sponsorship, uh, you have to actually be married. And you have to be married in a jurisdiction where your marriage is considered legal. So for instance, uh, a same-sex couple or uh, a couple with a, a trans member of the, the coupling, uh, they have their marriage, whether it's inside the United States or outside of the United States, has to be recognized as a legal marriage in the jurisdiction. Uh, I'll give so, you an example, actually. Yes, please do. Go ahead. Uh, so uh, I do a lot of work with same-sex couples, and uh, there are only 20, 30-some jurisdictions which actually allow same-sex couples to marry. So, for instance, say you are... Uh, going to get married in Taiwan, which recognizes same-sex marriages. There is a huge but there. And that okay. is, if the, the marriage is not recognized and is not legal, if one of the members is not resident in Taiwan. Um, so that would be considered an unviable marriage for U.S. immigration purposes. But if that same couple went to, say, Australia or to Argentina uh, or Mexico uh, or France, then that marriage would be considered valid. Isn't that interesting? I never knew that. So in Taiwan, and go over that again really quickly. 
Sure. So Taiwan does recognize same-sex couplings and same-sex marriages, but uh, for the marriage in Taiwan to be valid, one of the um, uh, partners to the marriage has to actually be a Taiwanese resident. Interesting. See, this is why you pay a lawyer, folks. This is what I'm talking about. You learn, you learn something all the time when you go into this stuff. So that covers uh, the common law couples thing there. Uh, you threw this at me in an email. You, you made sure to highlight this. We wanted to highlight, do I need to have a minimum income to sponsor my spouse? I know that in Canada, there's a, a uh, some parts of immigration where your family sponsorship, family reunification, uh, you're supposed to be taking responsibility for a person, helping them financially. I didn't know that that was uh, quite the same in the United States. It is, but it has a major difference. So in Canada, you do not actually have to have a minimum income to sponsor your spouse. Um, uh, any other family members, you do. Uh, and you have to uh, fill out paperwork that shows what your income level is. But when it comes right down to it, you don't have to have a minimum income. The U.S. is different. Uh, so for the sponsorship process in the U.S., you have to file something called an affidavit of support. And your income has to meet uh, the federal, pov uh, federal poverty guidelines uh, and has to be 125% above that federally established number. So for instance, until March of 2024, for a family of two, I'm looking at my little notes here, uh, you have to have a minimum income of 24,650 US dollars, family of two. However, if you're a family of eight, then that number jumps up to $63,200. So um, if you do not make that uh, in income, they can look at your assets or you can have another sponsor join the petition for the support of the foreign spouse. Interesting stuff. Okay, so obviously then, you, you know, you better have a job. <laughs> you need you need to be able to show that you can support yourselves. Yeah, either a job or you have sufficient assets or you have somebody who will put themselves on the hook for the sponsorship. Okay. Uh, is the process the same whether your spouse is in the U.S. or overseas? Like you've got the classic Las Vegas wedding or something. Someone comes over and gets me. Can you start the process right there and then? And how does it work if, uh, let's say, you... You fall in love with and you're on a work trip or something and you get to keep the relationship going and, and the spouse is in France. Sure. So there are two steps uh, that you can go, uh, two different paths after the I-130 application. You can either do it as consular processing where uh, the foreign spouse waits abroad uh, or might be in the United States for part of the time and finally goes for an immigrant visa interview at a U.S. consulate abroad. Uh, that's one way to do it. The other is called adjustment of status. And that's where the spouse is in the United States and all of the um, uh, processing for the green card takes place within the U.S. Uh, generally, if the spouse can somehow come to the U.S., and file adjustment of status. I usually prefer that because it has a much higher uh, approval rate than those filed with the consulates. Can people work while they're doing that? I mean, if, if someone comes over and they're waiting for an adjustment of status, can the, can the spouse, even though they don't have the green card yet, can, can they still get a visa to work? 
Yes. So what happens is they apply for an employment authorization document, an EAD, uh, and that when we file an adjustment of status, we usually will file for permission to travel and for the EAD so that the spouse can eventually work and travel inside and outside of the U.S. But if they don't have an EAD and they don't have some other non-immigrant work visa like an L visa or an H-1B or something like that, then they're not able or, or permitted to work until they have that permission. One last question along this line of thought. If someone comes over to the United States, say on a vacation or something, meets an American, they fall in love, that person is, let's say they're from Canada, so they get six months. Mm -hmm. uh, of visiting time, right, in the United States. And let's say they say, well, you know what, I want to stay in the United States until this all gets figured out. Can they do that? Or do they, have, I mean, because that six month clock is ticking for them, right? The six month clock is ticking. If they are in the United States, what we can do is file the I-130 petition and the adjustment of status at the same time. It's called a one-step. And that does permit the person to stay. Their status technically is in I-485 pending, so they can stay legally, but they can't leave. Interesting. Okay. And the last point on that, I guess, I'm sorry for all these last questions, oh, no. uh, but I'm trying to figure out, I've got, you know, I know a ton of friends from Europe and Ireland and England and all over the place. And I just know that there's some questions. So with the UK, the stay, uh, the visiting stay is 90 days. Right. And let's say they come over, same scenario, except this, I've got to figure, I mean, how does immigration look at it when they're like, let me get this straight. You came into the country and you fell in love and everything's hunky and now you want to get uh, you want to get married in 90 days. I mean, does that raise eyebrows? It might. It used to be um, a few years ago. There was a very hard line. It was 30 days. If you come into the U.S., no matter how many times you've been there or how long the relationship had been going. But if you come in and you marry within 30 days, it was automatically presumed to be immigration fraud. 60 days was generally the safe harbor. 90 days, you were pretty free and clear. Uh, they've gotten rid of that now, but I, I wouldn't recommend filing an adjustment or I-130 petition or adjustment of status before 60 days because uh, you're opening yourself up to potential inquiries about immigration fraud and whether this marriage was done just to uh, secure an immigration benefit. Right. Uh, we got at the bottom here. How long does the process take? As usual, I'm sure it depends. But it depends. If, I, if I recall correctly, a lot of this stuff in Canada, the way it goes, it can also depend on what country you're from. Yeah, that's true. The U.S., it does not seem to matter so much uh, where you're coming from, uh, although it might be more difficult to get documents and police checks and things like that. But uh in general, I would say it takes about two to two and a half years between the I-130 petition and the adjustment of status or I-130 petition and uh, the immigrant visa application at the consulate. Something important to note, though, um, the consulates set their own appointments. So if you're doing consular processing route, everything goes to this big warehouse um, called the NVC, National Visa Center, and they collect all of the information for the immigrant visa application. Working with the NVC can be challenging at times. 
once you have gotten everything documentarily completed at the NVC, then they let the consulate know that they've got a batch of 10 or 20 or 500 visa applications that are ready for appointment. It's only when the consulate comes back and says, okay, send visa applications 20 through 30 over for um, interview scheduling, do you actually get the appointment notice. So yeah. it, can, it can back up. Uh, and uh, that's why also I prefer adjustment of status within the U.S. if it's at all possible, because it proceeds more predictably. Yeah, I mean, the interview thing, that's the one that gets, you know, Hollywood's always interested in that one because it has a dramatic angle to it. Of You you go into the interview, you've got to prove that you're it's a bona fide relationship. Uh, what's been your experience with the interview process? Is it is it rigorous? I mean, do people need to be nervous about it? Or if they just simply, if, if they are honest and it is an honest wedding or marriage, they'll be fine? It's not rigorous, but it is thorough. And uh, the couples that I've dealt with who, whether they're doing adjustment of status at a USCIS office where they have the interview, or if it's at a consulate, they, they go through everything uh, and they will ask questions. Um, I once had a, a case and I wasn't 100% sure that they were a, a, a real couple. This was... I, I, I couldn't tell. Uh, they seemed to have everything in order, but I just had this little nagging doubt. And I actually went with them to the uh, interview in New York City, and uh, uh, all sorts of terrible things happened during the interview. Uh, the guy kept forgetting. He suddenly had a driver's license from a different state. And uh, the, the USCIS officer asked, so... Uh, what's your wife's mother's name? And it's like, ah, oh, it's, um, and, and she literally punches him. <laughs> it's like, oh, <laughs> and it's like, that is like, no, they're real. <laughs> <laughs> That's when you know it's a real relationship. How could you forget my mother's name? Yeah, exactly. But you know, uh, the, the USCIS officers and the consular officers, they are watching the body language. They're watching the, the, familiarity with the documents sometimes what they'll do is um especially within the united states they'll have uh the couples go into separate rooms and they'll interview them and ask the same questions like what brand of toothpaste do you use right who, who sleeps on what side of the bed if they really have concerns but i always tell my clients just think about your daily life in detail before that read through everything backwards and forwards we can have coaching sessions uh not coaching but just what kind of questions you'll see and how you respond to that if you get nervous do go through the questions that are out there on the internet five or six times just so you're comfortable somebody asks you what color is your spouse's toothbrush Right. And there's nothing really private, is there? I mean, I know that they might ask you some some intimate details and there's no point in trying to be coy. No. Right. Are they allowed to have a lawyer present, by the way? Yes. They are. Okay. Uh, except for at the consular ones. Uh, but at the USCIS offices, uh, they usually do allow it, um, although it's not typical anymore. Okay. What about, and that consular stuff, I mean, that's interesting. You say like, hey, send over applications 10 through 30. Uh, and they schedule the interview. I mean, you need to be kind of ready to fly over there and go to a meeting, yeah? Yeah, uh, and you don't know when it's going to happen. 
and you don't know if you're number 244 in the queue when you might actually get an appointment. It's gotten a lot better since the pandemic, but it, it's still quite slow. So the inside the U.S. stuff is obviously, if you can manage to do that, it's the better way to go. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Uh, the last question I have to ask, and I don't mean to um, rain on any parades or anything like that, but I have to ask, what happens if during this process, so someone comes over and they're establishing a life and you've got some applications in there and things are looking good. And what happens if we break up before the process is complete? Way to be a downer, Sean. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I have to, I mean, I got to no. figure it happens, right? You know. Okay. So for everything up until the moment that the green card is issued, the it the if the relationship ends, if the marriage ends in divorce, legal termination of the marriage, there is no more application. Um, so the U.S. citizen should write into USCIS and withdraw the I-130. If they haven't filed an affidavit of support, they should not. Um, if it gets to the point where the foreign spouse is called in for an interview, they'll figure it out during the questioning because they will ask you, is the marriage still valid? Are you still living together? Uh, but up until the green card is issued, the the process ends for the foreign national and they generally have to find another basis to stay in the united states as a non-immigrant maybe they can use a different process for um uh, attaining the green card like an employer-based petition or an investor-based petition but in general they're sol right now right right um <laughs> Up until the, it was interesting that you said that it ends in divorce. Now, could you be a little bit quite like, what happens if you're separated? I noticed you also said living together, but what happens if you consider yourself separated, but you're still legally married? So this is when state law comes in. If you file for a legal separation and your state's law where you filed for the separation automatically translates a separation into a divorce at one point in the future, then you're kind of in a no man's land. As long as you're legally separated and that you can stay legally separated uh, for uh, an indefinite amount of time, then you could go through and theoretically become a permanent resident. Uh, as long as you're uh, separated spouse doesn't withdraw the petition or um, will provide an affidavit of support. Uh, however, if the separation is just the next step before a divorce and it happens automatically, then you're more likely than not not going to become a permanent resident. Let's talk about kids really quickly too. I mean, kids might be a part of this. Um, you know, if, you, if you're bringing your spouse over, obviously you're going to want to bring presumably the children over. I think in the mm -hmm. United States, it's what, under 21 or something that yeah. kids are all a part of this. H how does that work? Uh, you, uh, you just file an I-130 petition for each of the kids under 21. Uh, the U.S. citizen would do that. Uh, and uh, again, whether they're in the United States or abroad, they would apply for adjustment of status or consular processing. Uh, they would need to have the I-130 petition, the same type of 
documentary proof of um, the relationship of their existence, their legal status. And uh, they would go through a very similar process that the spouse would go through. Provided the marriage is bona fide and then you get the green card, are all bets off after that? So let's say you break up after you get the green card. Does, you know, immigration doesn't come back to you and say, hey, we're going to need that green card back, do they? So, um, depends on how long you've been married before you file the I-130 petition. Yeah, that makes if, sense. Yeah. yeah. So if you're married for less than two years and you file the I-130 petition, once you go through everything, uh, the foreign spouse would get a conditional green card that's valid for two years. About six months before that two-year date ends, you file a petition called, uh, it's an I-751. We're U.S. immigration lawyers, so we can only talk in numbers and letters. We'll leave uh, that to you. Yeah, that's fine. <laughs> yeah, so you file this petition to lift the conditions. And um, whether you've divorced or not is not an automatic denial. Um, uh, they look still to make sure that it was a bona fide marriage when the marriage was entered into. And they look at the circumstances of the divorce and they, they look at everything. But uh, these 751 petitions, it is possible that you can be given your full 10-year green card if you are no longer married to the, the um, spousal sponsor. Excellent. Okay, Michael, thanks for this. I, it's, you know, there's a lot to talk about, but it's, yeah. uh, we gave it the, the brief deep dive. How is that? And went over <laughs> it. But if, if someone is out there with any other questions on their mind, be sure to contact Michael at morourke at pacelawfirm.com. Michael, thanks for this, and we'll see you soon. Thanks so much, Sean. Actually, before we go, I sure. would love to add something. Please do. Um, so that period prior to the green card being issued, if, for instance, there has been domestic abuse and violence in the household, and that led to the beginning of the end for the relationship, there is another route for domestic abuse survivors to file a self-petition for permanent residence, even though the original I-130 petition might have been uh, denied because the spouse, uh, the, the violent spouse is no longer supporting it. That's complex and definitely a, um, a video into itself. It's the Violence Against Women Act, uh, and it's a great tool for a really unfortunate situation, but it's something yeah. that we can look at. I think, and we will cover that soon in the future. I think it's very worthwhile doing, like you said. And I, it's good to know that that's out there because let's face it, the stuff that we're talking about makes it sound like you're tied to a person, right? Where, right. you know, if you're in process for years waiting for something and you have to put up with uh, someone horrible, I mean, it's that's just tough to imagine. So yeah. uh, we will cover that. I pre and I appreciate you bringing that up. Uh, that's Michael O'Rourke, uh, morourke at pacelawfirm.com. Michael, thanks again. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks so much, Sean. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.